and see yourselves because it's um yeah it's a delight uh honor <laughs> kind of like Dara was speaking to last night it's just really an honor to be with you especially at this um this time in the retreat I'm going to go ahead and dive into the topic tonight and I'm going to be tonight sharing more information with you than what I do sometimes in talks. And as always, when you listen to these talks, you know, we invite you to um, settle back in your heart and to kind of trust that what needs to land to make a difference to your practice will and the rest can just flow on through. So it's no secret that we spend quite a bit of time on this path talking about dukkha. We gotta talk about dukkha to know that which is not dukkha. And um, tonight I'd like to share with you a map that offers a description of how the mind is transformed as the practice unfolds and there are deeper and deeper levels of, uh, of letting go, a map of what happens as the, as the seven factors are in balance and strong and as sati does its work. So I'll be speaking about uh, liberative dependent arising this is sometimes called transcendent dependent arising. And I really, transcendence is part of this path, but I am partial to the word liberative because um, so often there can be this, um, what we call transcendent, you know, can be a kind of a subtle aversion to the messiness of our bodies, to the messiness of relationships, to the messiness of life. And, um, and the path is so much more a practice of, of down and in versus up and out in my, in my experience. So I'll use the, the, um, the phrase liberative dependent arising. And last March on the month long, when I was teaching with uh, Dara and Adrian and others, and we spent the whole month on this theme. It was just so many of you were there. It was, it was so rich. So I just have a real appreciation for... You know, the Buddha was this brilliant mind and he was a really good teacher. And he's got all these incredible lists and maps and, um, and these, these practices and these teachings, you know, stay alive because we practice them. So I'm, I'm happy that you are here practicing and doing your part to like free yourself and keep the teachings alive. And I just, as, as uh, mindfulness has more and more breadth and reach in in this country and in this world, which is great. Um, it's so important to me to have retreats like this that really allow us to practice the depth of the teachings. So um, in this teaching of liberative dependent, dependent arising, I'll be talking about the different steps. And I mean this to be a practical, a practical sharing where you can recognize elements of, of your own experience, of your own journey that are happening here, here for you. And I think on long retreat, it's helpful to remember and to keep fresh in your mind where we're headed, you know, what the point of it all is. So the practice itself, uh, you know, we, we practice within this understanding 
that suffering, and I'm talking about the kind of suffering that is the second dart. I'm talking about the suffering created from our confusion. I'm not talking about the kind of suffering, you know, that's like sickness or abuse or, or um, you know, the, the ways that we're recipients of really difficult things in this world that aren't our fault in the least, but just the suffering that comes from our misunderstanding. Um, that, that dukkha, it's not random. Dukkha comes from conditions. And um, so certain conditions come together to create the experience of stress, the experience of dukkha. Even here, you know, it's like you can come to Spirit Rock in terms of relative safety in the world. This is a, not, not such a bad place, you know. You've got, you've got food, you've got a place to rest, you have people here to support you. It's a comment. It's like externally, you know, in the catalogs, they look so beautiful. <laughs> you come and, you know, there's all this dukkha that's been conditioned. It's been conditioned, you know, if depending on, on, on what you believe, you know, it's been conditioned possibly over many, many lifetimes. And, um, and you know, suffering is conditioned and freedom, freedom is lawful as well. Freedom arises from conditions. And what we're doing here, we're creating supportive conditions to, um, as, as basically supportive conditions that, um, that may give rise to our own understanding, to the sure heart's release. You hear, you've probably heard the, the saying that uh, enlightenment is an accident. You know, it just happens in a moment, spontaneous. It's an accident but retreats make you accident prone <laughs> because of all the cultivation, all the cultivation, all the path activity here. And so because uh, dukkha is conditioned, we can back ourselves out of it. We can back ourselves out of it because our own minds and hearts are part of the, of the, condition at, the conditionality. So these teachings are really, um, you know, when this is, that is. When this isn't, that isn't. So I'm talking more about condition, conditionality than causation tonight. It's not as linear um, through time as, as causation is. So we've talked you know, over and over about how suffering comes into existence. And you know, the, the, the map of dependent origination you know, goes through these, these 12 links about how basically... You know, this, these tangles that we find ourselves in come from ignorance. They come from being out of touch. They come from, from ignorance. And from ignorance as a condition, you know, arise, arise all these different formations. And we've talked about the process of contact that happens when a sense organ and a sense object and consciousness meet. And... Um, we talked about the feeling tone that comes, craving and clinging, and boom, you know, boom, there is a separate self with a story of who I am that's separate from everything else in the world. It just happens over and over again. And in, in the practice, you've been exploring, investigating this process, not in a theoretical way, I hope, but in really a present moment. You know, every time your, you know, the choiceless attention lands on an object, um, you know, you're exploring the way the world is created through these different sense doors that include the mind.
And so there's another teaching, a teaching that's such good news, that's the other half of the map, that, that, that explores what happens when we move from ignorance to suffering, when we move from suffering to freedom. And uh, really the Buddha takes the teaching of conditionality and applies it to the process of awakening, offering a map for what's really possible, what's possible for us as practitioners. So the map explores what needs to be cultivated for the mind to let go. We've been talking a lot about that together. And then what actually happens as the mind lets go. And as I speak about letting go, just a reminder, like you don't do it. You know, you do the practice, a lot of which is letting be. Really deeply allowing letting be that intimacy of contactfulness with your experience. And it's the wisdom. It's the wisdom of, of con- law, the long process of, um, of conscious awareness that allows for, for the letting go. So in the Samutta Nikaya, there's, um, which is a, the connected sayings on causality, there is the Upanisa Sutta, which is the discourse on supporting conditions. You know, what conditions will support are unfolding, and any scholars in the room, I'm not a Pali scholar, um, may know a lot more, but it's my understanding that the Buddha offered this teaching just two times at Savati in Jetta's Grove, and this teaching is probably a result of what the Buddha had observed over and over again in time as he saw you know, his students um, doing their practice and coming to more understanding over time, and, and again, you'll recognize this from your own journey, not so much in a linear sequence, but in, in how it all unfolds, unfolds together. Because reality itself is it's dynamic, and we are part of shaping our lived, our lived reality. So you've heard, you've heard the saying, suffering leads to bewilderment or search. There's kind of two ways it can go. You know? Um, and dukkha, dukkha is the supporting condition for the arising of faith, the arising of sadha. Dara spoke some about faith last night. James has spoken about faith. Devin gave a whole talk on faith. So we've been talking a lot about faith. And um, when there is dukkha and there's a search that's not guided by more bewilderment, but a search that's guided by wise view, um, faith begins to unfold. And, and it's, it's, you know, for me, it's really encouraging to know that when I'm stuck with suffering, you know the experience of being stuck with suffering, that it can sow the seeds of your own freedom. You know, Ajahn Chah uh, said, when you can't go up or down or sideways, then practice really begins. And you might know that feeling, being inside your own mind in a sitting, and it's like, oh, if I could just get out of my own mind, you know, if I could just get rid of this, it can feel like being in a little box sometimes and we just want to, we want to break free, seeing that's where, that's where um, 
practice begins, and mindfulness is what gives us the steadiness to um, see that the box, <laughs> that the box is an illusion. So, faith is something that that we can't force to arise. You know, faith unfolds as your own as your own development allows, and if the element of awakening did not exist in folks, um, there wouldn't be a turning toward the path. If the element of awakening didn't exist in you, there would be no development of the possibility. So faith, I, 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 for me, it's not so much a decision. It's like a, a draw over time, like a calling, a draw, an understanding over time, I was remembering the first long retreat that I sat, which was here at Spirit Rock. And it was, it was a really hard retreat for me. I was, um, I was missing folks at home. There was a lot going on in my life when I left to come practice. It was this, I fed this February retreat. And, um, and, and I remember being in so much aversion you know, so much aversion that I didn't want to have be there. And I was trying to do metta and trying to be mindful, but there was a lot of aversion and I was identified with it. That was just what was happening. I remember like the mind story when they would serve more butternut squash and white beans for lunch. That was, those were the big staples that year for the food. And um, it was just this whole, this whole thing for me. And I got done with the retreat and, and my aunt and uncle who live in the area they picked me up and um, I was telling them how hard it was and they said, well, Aaron, you never have to do something like that again. You've done it once. <laughs> no, you never have to do something like that again. I said, I know I'm never doing something like that again. <laughs> I even remember at the end of the retreat, my, my beloved teacher who was working with me, he said to me, so, you know, is there anything you got out of that, Aaron? Like, if, if, you, could, if you could take something home with you, what would that be? He was, he was reaching to help me reframe um, what was happening <laughs> on that retreat. And I, I got home, and, you know, at, my mind hadn't been particularly settled. There were no major life-changing insights for me. I got home, and... You know, much to my own surprise, and despite myself, something had happened in my heart. You know, there was a sense that something quite deep had been touched in me. And what had happened is that the seeds of faith were planted more fully than I knew. Even though it was really hard, you know, the measure of the fruit of the retreat, it's not the measure of ease. And... Um, you know, and I started having these thoughts about going to do the same thing again next year. <laughs> and I did, you know, and, and I did. <laughs> um, but it's part of how our suffering, part of how our suffering can be noble. Because it can give rise to faith, which allows this whole, whole unfolding. And faith is always ever-deepening trust in the unknown. You know, there's verified faith, but in a momentary way, it's like, well, you were asked to trust the unknown in, in, in um, more and more ways. So faith is the supporting condition 
for the quality of joy to arise. And this is the joy of, of Pomoja. It's a joy that is the gladdening, the gladdening of the heart. And um, this kind of gladness comes when we discover that things are workable. You know, there's a joy in knowing that the mind may go in all these different directions, but wisdom awareness can meet it. You know, things become workable when we've tasted mindfulness, when we have some um, connection to the practices of the heart. And when we know that we can work things through, there's like a, a letting go into the stream. There's something that knows that it's not all dukkha. And, um, and there's a resting here. Something in us starts to rest um, from a kind of joy that, that doesn't need to be held on to. Pamoja joy is the supporting condition for, um, for piti. And Adrienne talked about piti when she talked about the seven factors of awakening. Piti is a mental, it's a, it's a mental factor. It's one of the fourth aggregates and it's um, you know, often translated, sometimes it's translated as joy, it's more, more commonly translated as rapture. This is when you get interested in the practice. This is when, um, it's a, a, real, a real turning point when what's happening actually becomes interesting. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, there's a, there's a curiosity, there, there becomes more of a buoyancy and an engagement in the mind. Um, this pity can be, you know, an experience of, of a kind of embodied presence that, um, that allows the mind to not be careening all over the place quite so much because the mind is interested in what's happening in the body. And uh, not just the body, but the body's part of that. And, and, and so the, the mind gets soothed out some by the direct experience of the body when we're interested in, what, in what's happening. This is kind of smoothing out. And every, each one of you have, have tasted this. Maybe it hasn't been all the time every day, but, but know that what I'm talking about, you know, we can, we can get so identified with the dukkha in the practice, it's really uh, valuable to um, show up fully for these moments where, where wholesome qualities come forth. And even, even as the path is unfolding in a wholesome direction, there's still dukkha. You know, it's like because there's dukkha doesn't mean the path isn't unfolding in a wholesome way. So pity is a supportive condition for, for calm, for tranquility, pasadi. And Adrian spoke about this as well. Um, you know, I've heard from many of you in the interviews, you know, just, just moments of, of tranquility where stuff's going on, but, but you're less troubled by it, where it's landing more softly. Tranquility is the supportive condition for the arising of happiness, the arising of sukha. Sukha, sukha is not, is different than dukkha. <laughs> sukha is like a, sukha is a, in the second um, aggregate, sukha is like a feeling tone. There's, a, there's some experience of pleasurableness 
with the experience of sukha. We, we often translate the word sukha as happiness, but happiness can mean so many different things. This is a kind of sukha that, um, where there's some measure of, of contentment, some measure of um, happiness. It can be quite mild in the body. It, it can be quite strong sometimes in the body, the sensations of sukha. I remember doing a long retreat at IMS. Some of you have practiced at IMS, our, our sister center, Spear Rock Sister Center. And I was given one of the rooms in the old gym in the basement. It smelled a little bit moldy. I was there a long time, and a long time for me. And I remember one time just in the afternoon, there was this little window up top, and... Um, just sitting in my room with my eyes open, just sitting in this basic wooden chair. There weren't any pictures up in the room. And I was sitting there with, with such contentment. And I just, you know, it, it occurred to me kind of how miraculous it was that I was sitting in this very simple room that from the outside might look really boring, might look like, you know, Let's get some action. Not much going on here. But it was like it was like so content. The contentment was from the simplicity. It was just like I, I didn't need anything else. It was just utter utter contentment. Those those moments where we don't need more. We don't need the next best different thing to be happy. And uh, and that that deeper happiness. I know that's part of what motivates me to be here. Um, spending my time with you in this way, that, 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 that happiness. Sukha. So sukha is the supporting condition for, for, the, the, for samadhi, for collectedness. And um, you know, the presence of contentment is really a gateway to, um, to a lot, to a lot in the practice. So um, and as I'm speaking about these, if you practice any one of them, it will lead to the others. This, this is not just a this happens and then this happens and this happens. They weave together. It happens over and over again. You may start somewhere and end up, you know, you could be starting with whatever and end up back at faith and it's all wholesome. But it's just, it, it's um, any, any dimension of what I'm talking about that you practice will lead, will lead to everything that I'm talking about. So samadhi, samadhi, getting, trying to get samadhi is a great recipe for frustration. (laughs) You know that thing of trying to get concentrated, the trying to get concentrated. And this teaching is saying that concentration comes from some measure of contentment or enjoyment. That's important. That samadhi has to do with with uh, with contentment, and the the word psalm means together, like sangha coming together, and da is to put in place. So it's a kind of coming together, putting in place a sense of um, unifying the mind, collecting the mind, with just a steady and undistracted awareness, practicing non non distraction. 
establishing, making firm. I like the, the uh, metaphor of a, of a butter knife. If you imagine a, like a stick of butter, especially maybe one that's not really soft yet, it's a stick of butter you just get out of the fridge, and if there's a knife to cut the stick of butter, um, you know, if a knife is really light, it, it's hard to cut through the butter. You know, the weight of the knife is part of what allows that cutting action to happen. But if, there, if the blade isn't sharp, it's also hard to cut through the butter. So, um, you know, the, it's like the weight of the knife is, is kind of like the presence of samadhi in the practice. And the blade is, is the vipassana. The blade, the vipassana is what actually cuts through. But the presence of that collectedness gives a different kind of power to the process of cutting, of cutting through. So, um, samadhi... Ajahn Suchito says, says, um, he says, he says, getting samadhi is, is your recipe for endless frustration. We may think we need to try harder, but this misses an important point. The heart needs to be purified, not through intense attention on an object, but through wise reflection on our attitudes and our approach. Then samadhi can come around through an, enjo- through an, an enjoyment that deepens as we purify the heart. Samadhi coming around through an enjoyment that deepens as we purify the heart. And there can be, you know, a lot of, it's easy to get wrapped up with comparing mind when it comes to samadhi. You know what I'm talking about. Um, And you know, the, the function of samadhi, samadhi makes a mind, in the Buddha's words, be malleable be flexible, be uh, wieldy. And, and um, I was thinking about this this afternoon. I was, I was, you know, the, these Winter Olympics are going on. I'm not watching them. Neither are you. But they're happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's all these amazing Olympians that are, you know, figure skating and skiing and playing hockey and snowboarding and, in the luge, I mean, just you know, incredible. And, and think about you know what we what we see, what we would see on TV if we were watching TV, or if we were if we were at the Olympics. You know, these highly trained athletes, you know, doing something that that probably you know it might look like it's some exertion, but you know, like the some of these figure skaters, they make it look so smooth. You know, they make it look so effortless. There's so much more going on than the than the the beautiful performance that we see for two minutes, you know, that determines these huge outcomes. But um, I was just thinking about all the work that goes into um, these athletes being able to, um, you know, display in the ways that they do. I was just been thinking about the figure skaters, and I thought, I wonder what they do before they actually, you know, go into the competition. I'm sure they do tons of warming up. Their bodies need to be malleable. Their bodies need to be flexible and wieldy. And, and that takes us so much more than just that two minutes that you see. It takes all this cultivation. But it takes kind of warming up. Samadhi is a way of um, really warming up so that, so that the sati can do its work. Because, because um, 
You know, samadhi in and of itself does not liberate. It can be all these goodies, but it's not in and of itself uh, liberating. So, so samadhi is the supporting condition for knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yatabhuta, jnanadasana, how things have come to be. And this is a way of talking about, about insight. This is a way of talking about um, the development of insight. It's the, it's, the, it's the blade of that knife, the work of wisdom that frees us. So, you know, we're talking about this and you're practicing this, you know, working with the five aggregates in your experience and looking at uh, dukkha, non-dukkha, the Four Noble Truths, you know, all of these, these different ways of investigating. The investigation is, is, a, is a primary factor that brings about um, the wisdom that, lets, that allows the letting go to happen and... I'm going to share with you um, some words from Bhikkhu Bodhi that I that I like that I like because there can be a sense of like, oh my gosh, here's another map of all this wholesome stuff, and this isn't happening for me. But it's really um, this is about being right where they are, <laughs> you know, dukkha with wise view and practice being a, a condition for the arising of faith. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through an understanding of the conditioned. Nibbāda cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path of liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. He says, Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze toward samsara and scrutinizing it in all its starkness. The understanding of the conditioned and the realization of the unconditioned are found to lock together in direct connection. So he's saying like the way to taste the unconditioned is by being directly with where you are. You know, not beyond, but, but like with where you are, turning your gaze towards samsara. It's just, it was meaningful for me in some ways to hear that from Bhikkhu Bodhi. I mean, he's an incredible, inspiring, brilliant, monastic scholar, activist. It's just um, so beautiful there. So, so knowledge and vision, this... this um, you know, we use mindfulness as a conceptual framework, but the knowledge and vision, you think about if you, if you were, to, were to see something, the seeing is very direct, it just happens, spontaneous. We can add a bunch of concepts onto that, but seeing in and of itself 
isn't necessarily conceptual. And so the, this, um, this knowledge and vision is like, really requires us to be in contact with our experience directly, which is what we're doing here. And knowledge and vision <laughs> is the supporting condition for disenchantment, for nibbida. And we don't talk so much about disenchantment and, um, and dispassion. I'm going to speak a bit about these, but, but um, disenchantment, nibbida means finding out. Finding out. And, you know, a lot of life can have the feeling of the kind of enchantment where it's like living in a spell. Um, and we're often in love with our spells. You know, we're often very invested in being enchanted. And, um, you know, disenchantment, as we see more and more, you know, all the, like impermanence really, inconstancy, that's really how things are. You know, oh, suffering, I don't get rid of it by running away from it. You know, I get rid of it by cultivating a different relationship to these moments of, of um, contention in my experience. As, 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 we, um, as we see more clearly, as wisdom dawns in our hearts, it can be like waking up from a spell. I think of the, the fairy tales where the characters are all enchanted. And what happens is they, as they wake up from the spell, and it's like, oh, Things may not look quite as rosy <laughs> as I thought. And so, you know, we wake up from the spell. We're no longer enchanted that happiness lives out there. That some external experience or change is going to be, you know, that's it. Now I got it. And, and um, we may, we may, it's like when you are watching a magic show. It can be very enchanting to watch a magic show. And then if the magician comes out and says, here's, here's actually what's, what's going on, and it's not that great of a magic show anymore because there's, you know what's happening. You know, you know, like the bunny doesn't pop out of thin air. And, um, and a lot of you, you know, in our, in our meetings are, are, are talking about this, are talking about this, this disenchantment as you see the unreliability of your strategies. As you see that extra second arrow that comes when you, when, you, um, when you get caught. And the process of disenchantment, it's, it's like an inward turn. Um, our society, the society, I'll speak about the dominant culture in this country, is totally caught up with enchantment. You know, this society is caught enchanted with wealth. You know, as if enough money is going to make you rise above everything. You know, it's this, this, the dominant culture enchanted with youth, enchanted with individual power, enchanted with the myth of the American dream. And if you just work hard enough, you know, as if we all start out with the, from the same place, you know, as if it's really equal. There's, there's such... Um, such enchantment. So as we come to practice, we're, we're metabolizing all of this, all of this. And, and um, there can be a sense of loss with disenchantment because we don't get the kind of um, 
numbness of the delusion in quite the same way. Maybe you were enchanted with the idea of this retreat. Did you have an enchanting idea about how this retreat would be? It sounds so enchanting, you know, go to Spirit Rock, practice the Dharma, da, da, da. It's like you get here, it's like, oh, and there's no spell at all about these 45 minutes and you know, sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. That's the reality, waking up from that. And so um, this, this disenchantment, which I'll talk about because we need to become disenchanted. The spell needs to be broken to become re-enchanted. We need to become dispassioned to become repassion and have passion that comes from a place of more connectedness and aliveness. So it's like there's a letting go that happens as we become more of who we really are. Um, there's good news here. There's good news here. Um, so it, with, with, with this experience of kind of like waking up because the clear seeing is happening, there can often be this, this urgency, a, a kind of samvega of, whoa, this is how it is? Heck yeah, I want to practice. You know, a real urgency. Um, you see this sometimes, you know, when people get a diagnosis, you know, because we can live with a spell that we're going to live forever or live till whatever age your mind tells you you're going to live to. And sometimes if there's a, a diagnosis that brings us face to face with, with um, the possibility of our own mortality or the vulnerability of our own bodies, you know, like that enchantment that it would go a certain way for us, like that spell's broken pretty quickly. Sometimes it's not, not broken pretty quickly, but it can be this real sense of, wow, th- this matters. The practice really, really matters. And this happened with the Buddha. You know, the Buddha was, for many years, understandably enchanted with his wealthy life as a prince, you know, life full of sense pleasure. Um, but when he encountered the heavenly messengers, he, he was becoming disenchanted. He was losing, that spell was losing its power over him. So as I'm speaking, you might just kind of sense like, oh, have, have you tasted this just a little bit in your experience? Have you tasted disenchantment? So uh, disenchantment neurota is uh, nibida, nibida, sorry, nibida, not neurota, nibida. Um, disenchantment is, is, is a condition, a supportive condition for, for dispassion. The Pali word for dispassion is viraga. You know what happens if you do a Google search for viraga? <laughs> Viagra. I kept, I kept like, did they think I typed it in wrong? <laughs> did they think I typed it in wrong? Pages and pages. <laughs> it's pretty funny <laughs> to be doing a search for um, viraga. <laughs> And see Viagra come up over and over again. <laughs> so so what, we're, what we're doing here, some of what we're doing here is, is getting a sense, getting a felt sense for, for that which is, is, um, is dispassionate. Getting a felt sense for um, space, for space, for the expression of dispassion. And... and um, I want to say that I'm using the word passion. 
Um, I'm using it as a synonym for, for greed, for craving, for lust. So, you know, dispassion is a process of letting go of our attachments to greed, to craving, to lust. It's not a, and I'll, I'll be speaking about this, but it's not a, um, it's not saying you can't have zeal and excitement and ardency in your practice. Really a sense of, um, of um, not getting so wrapped up with all the identities that move through. You know, we, we touch into dispassion with a sense of like, oh yeah, there's you know, all this stuff's going on and there's a space here. You know, there's a space that, that holds it just like the earth is in space. The content of the mind is happening through a larger field of awareness. And so I'm speaking about dispassion as something that can hold your passion. Dispassion is something that can hold your fullness, that can hold your love of truth, that um, can hold the waves of what it means to be a human being um, who feels. You know, dispassion as um, a connectedness to some of what Dara was speaking about last night, to the larger, vast, awake refuge that, that holds us. So dispassion is a release into the larger truth um, of our lives. It's like a just a change in experiences can be it can be a sense of loss because the experience of sense gratification isn't the same like you know the desire to go get the ice cream to numb out may not arise because the experience of eating the ice cream doesn't quite do it for you in the same way it did it's fine maybe but it might not be you know the best of everything in an ongoing way I, I remember after a a three-month retreat I sat, I, um, you know, I'd had a really beautiful retreat. And there, there, I came back and there was a lot of spaciousness and freedom in my mind. I was definitely happier than I had been ever before in, in, my, in my life. And there was just you know, clarity, spaciousness. And it was really an interesting process going back home to the place I was living in, in Durango, because there was a feeling of like um, the way I'd known myself before in terms of my identity, it just wasn't available in the same way. And um, I, you know, I, I knew who I wasn't. There was a sense of that Erin that had left to sit the retreat. She, she wasn't anymore. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't coalesce into the same Erin that had been there before I sat the retreat, but I didn't quite know who, what this new Erin was. I had no idea, in fact. And I remember the experience of, of uh, you know, walking into my house. It was like, wow, I, you know, I, I would like to be friends with a woman who lived here. Like she has good art, you know, good clothes, and and um, <laughs> but it was just this feeling of of um, of it landing differently in me because of the dispassion, you know. And I remember at the time I was doing a lot of, of training on my road bike, and you know. I would still go take these road bike rides, but they were fine, but it wasn't like amazing. And I I would go out with my friends and I was happy to see my friends, 
but it wasn't this cycle of I got to have this and now it's so great. Oh, and then I got to have it again and now it's so great. You know, because the mind was abiding in more, um, more equanimity, more, more spaciousness, um, a different place. And, and the relating was really different because there wasn't so much to bump up against in me. Um, so it's like there was a lot of contentment on one level, but it was unfamiliar on another level because of the dispassion that was present. It was like a different experience of my being in relationship when I wasn't being driven by Kalesa in quite the same way. And, um, and I'm talking about this because, you know, like we, we have these ideas that awakening is just, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And it's, it, you know, it, that, that may happen, but that's not all that happens. You know, there, there, there's dukkha that we tolerate as we wake up. And I, I was um, saying to a friend, an a elder in my life who really has beautiful Dharma practice, and I, I'd said to her, you know, that I, and I hadn't read any of this stuff. I, I didn't know this, this map. And I had said to her, you know, I, I felt like I was a bright tapestry woven with all these different colors, all these different textures. And I said it was like all the color had gotten washed out. You know, and I, I, I needed to, to like put the color back in. I didn't know what that was. And, and then years, years later, as I, as I became familiar with liberative dependent arising and I studied the word viraga, it, it means literally decoloring. Decoloring. But it doesn't mean you become a gray blob with no personality or no preferences or no personhood. It doesn't mean that at all. Deepama, whose presence has been with us, we've talked about her some on this retreat. Deepama, who had just tremendous, tremendous realization, um, she, was, she was asked if we get rid of greed, hate, and in- ignorance, it sounds like life might be sort of gray and dull. You know, like, where's the juice? And Deepama burst out laughing. And she said, oh, you don't understand. There's so much sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. She's speaking about a re- the repassioning <laughs> that happens. We become, we become more alive. Um, so I, so I want to say, like, when we're using the word passion to talk about zeal, chanda, enthusiasm, um, it, those energies are really important on a spiritual path. So the this, what I'm saying isn't a tamping down of these energies in any way. Because when, when passion in the sense of enthusiasm is dried up, um, we really have to get to know the beliefs and conditioning that, that are kind of covering over that word ardency. Um, Eugene, our, our, our good friend Eugene says, he's talking about the ardency, you know, Buddha's instructions are to practice with ardency, which could be seen as a kind of enthusiasm. Um, you know, Eugene puts it beautifully in his language. He says, when this ardency is released, it becomes the fuel of spiritual life. 
setting the stage for the organic arising of compassion and dispassion. So the enthusiasm and the way we commonly use the word passion is, is really um, so, so important. And, and as we become disenchanted, it creates the space to become re-enchanted, to see with new uh, wonder, new appreciation. There, there's a way that the world of appearances can be just infused in, in, a, whole, in a whole new way that, that allows the, the fullness of who we are to shine forth more fully. And this doesn't like happen once and then it's done. It's, it goes on in all these different ways over time. And, and it's just like a long process of, of what it means to embody, to really embody our understanding and, and to, um, to kind of uh, be in your personal expression of you when your identities aren't running the show, who you are when your identities aren't running the show. So this is some of why it just takes a lot of trust to do this work. It's important, you know, it's important to have teachers who you trust and where you can travel the territory um, with them. Well, trust is really important as, as we kind of know where we can rest, where we can lay ourselves down because, you know, when we build our altars in the direction of these identities that are small and um, limited, it's not an ennobling kind of suffering. You know, we're, we're moving into, like Dara talked about, a larger refuge, a larger mystery that... that um, that is here even as the mind flits about. So it's mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness is what encourages this. To take this this dispassion a little bit further. Some of you know the fire sermon. The Buddha could be speaking to us. He's speaking to a group of monks. He could be speaking to us. He says, everything, oh monks, is burning. And how is everything burning? The eye is burning. Visible things are burning. The contact of the eye with visible things is burning. The sensation produced by the contact of the eye with visible things is burning. You know, he goes on, the ear is burning, sounds are burning, odors are burning, the tongue is burning, the body, the mind, burning with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is powerful language. It's very powerful language if you kind of get a felt sense of this burning that he's talking about. And he goes on to explain that a practitioner walking the noble path becomes weary of the eye weary of visible things, weary of mental impressions based on the eye, weary of contact with visible things. It goes through all the different sensations, all the way to thoughts. You know, it's like burning of being somebody. It can, it can feel like that, you know, the way a fire, a fire burns. And, and he says... Um, 
He says becoming weary, becoming weary of everything burning, becoming weary, one divests oneself of grasping. And by absence of grasping is made free. It's like the weariness with the process. Some of you have really spoken to this, the weariness of the process. One divests oneself of grasping, divesting the energy of letting go, stepping back, and by absence of grasping is made free. So you, you can practice this from time to time. How is it to have a cup of tea not from grasping? If you notice the grasping come, you know, settle back. Um, let it drop. What happens if you're not directing your mind in every moment? If you divest yourself of the grasping, what's that like in the present moment? You know, nibbana is like an extinguishing. Nibbana is a cooling. We're, we're, we're moving into the cooler waters of how the practice unfolds. This is by Rumi. It's called, I, it's called, I sat long enough in fire. I sat long enough in fire. Now I'm up to my neck in the water of union. You say up to your neck is not enough. Make your head your foot and descend into love. There is no up to the neck union. I say, but for the sake of your garden, I sat up to my neck in blood. You say, yes, you escaped the alluring world, but not yourself. You are the magician caught in his own trickery. Cut the breath of self and be silent. Language cannot come from your throat as you release and go under. I changed one word in there. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful pointing, you know, pointing to those, those experiences that are hardest sometimes to actually explain. So, so basically, um, dispassion is the supporting condition for emancipation, which is, you know, deeper and deeper freedom. The insight that, that, you know, just irreversible understandings in, in the mind stream that happen in stages over time. Where the mind isn't overwhelmed. It's the mind's not overwhelmed um, with, with greed and aversion. There's still pleasure and pain, but it doesn't overwhelm the mind in the same way. And emancipation, vimuti, is a supporting condition. This, this, the way they translate this is, it, it just is, cracks me up sometimes, for knowledge and destruction of the cankers, um, which is basically knowing, knowing um, what, what has happened is known. What has happened is known. And, and in all of this, it takes a really solid and good foundation to, to allow the unfolding to arise, to allow... Um, things to not arise, but it starts with, it starts with suffering being a supportive condition for the development of faith, the development of trust. That's where it starts. And if you practice right there, you don't have to do the rest. Nature takes care of it. You don't have to do it. It's like, you know, in this retreat, you know, just taking a moment to, you might feel like you're suffering more in some ways, 
but certainly the the quality of wisdom awareness, the quality of heart that you're bringing to the moments of dukkha is um, is being informed, is being informed by, by the Dharma, by wisdom, and mindfulness, mindfulness and, and samadhi really is the foundation for all of the unfolding. So it's like our, our, our job is to do the path activity. Our job is to, is to show up and um, be practicing this Noble Eightfold Path, which everyone, everyone here is. And, um, and just that piece of from dukkha, it, it becomes possible to have more trust and more faith with, with wise view. I think I'll end with another poem. Yeah, on the map, it's just, it's, it's a, it's like, you don't have to try to reach whatever on the map. It's like, it's just unfolds naturally as we take care of this moment, as we take care of this moment. This is a poem called Waiting by Lisa Lowitz. You keep waiting for something to happen, the thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, The dishes, the job, it stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering all your piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of of walking, of waking. You laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40 or 50 or 60 And some part of you realizes you're not alone and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when a caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom, that this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and writhing and pushing until one day, one day, you emerge from the wreck embracing both the immense dawn and dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. Just take a moment of silence together.
Thank you for your your attention tonight and just the a real sincerity and beauty of your your practice here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.